So we are kind of closing in on the end of this series where we've been looking at uh, the book of Psalms and kind of and also at the elements of this gathering, uh, the things that we do each week um, when we worship t- together, and we're discussing how um, both of them kind of work together, why they're important, why we do them, and how they actually equip us for the rest of the week. So it's not just a a, a one week, one of a one day a week thing, but how do these things that we do here now equip us as we're scattered throughout in our missional communities and in our workplaces and in our homes? Um, so today we're, we're talking about communion. I'm going to discuss communion, and if you haven't noticed, um, we do take communion every week. Um, we take it after this time when someone comes up and speaks and shares from God's Word. Um, but I was wondering, as I was thinking about that this week, as I wonder how often when we go take communion, it can just kind of become something like that we just do. It just becomes something that's rote, something that just like, oh, well, this is the next thing that I'm supposed to do now. It's just part of our gathering. Um, and it doesn't have actually the impact or the value that God actually intended it to have when he gave it to us so that we remember who he truly is. Um, I was thinking about communion this week, and I grew up in a church um, where we took communion uh, once a month. And as a kid, I kind of, I, I thought this was kind of, I seemed it as something very special. It was at the end of the service, and what would happen is the church leaders would, would all come down to the front, and they just kind of like, they would line up in the back, kind of like in this military fashion, and they'd, they'd come, we lived in a military town, so I'm sure there was something to do with that. But they would come down, they would stand in the front row, and then they would get these trays, and they would... They would, they would hand each one a tray and then they would go back to each pew and they would pass them down and they would, they would like, maybe you grew up in a church like that and then they would get, collect them all at the end and then they would walk back down to the front. They would give the trays back to the pastor and then he would give each one of them and they would take a cracker and then at the end, we, then he would pray and read some scripture. Then we'd all eat the cracker together and then the whole thing would start over again. And, and during that time, we were supposed to, um, you know, pray and confess our sins, and, and it was this very solemn, very formal, quiet time, and, and as a kid, I wondered, what would happen if I, like, didn't confess my sins, and I, like, ate this cracker and drank this juice? Was I going to get sick, you know, or, like, was something bad going to happen to me? And so, like, I would sit there, and I would, like, confess everything I could think of, and I would, like, and then at the end, I would do, like, one of these, like, blanket prayers, like, whatever I forgot, you know, like, let me confess that, too. And so, uh, that's kind of, like, the, the history of my community kind of as I grew up, and I know many of us have grown up in different churches. Maybe you've had some of that background. Maybe you've stood in line and, and a priest kind of served it to you. Maybe you did something similar to what we do now. Maybe you had some other thing. But I think as we, as we come to communion, we all kind of bring these different pieces or different thoughts of what we think communion is or what, what it's supposed to do. I remember one as well when I went to my grandparents' church, they did it even stranger. I, I, don't, I don't know. I think it's strange. Anyway, maybe this is not strange, but they just would have one loaf of bread and one cup, and they would just pass it down the aisles. And you would just like rip and you drink out of the same cup. And like, I guess you were just like praying that you didn't get Sally's disease on the end. Like, it was kind of like that's what they did. Um, but for thousands of years, um, followers of God have been taking communion in various forms. And so there must be some type of value to it. Yet I think as we, as we come to communion, we often, we often bring these other things or bring these ideas in. And so I, what I want to do today is I want to talk about what is the purpose of why God gave us communion? 
What is what is the what was what was the meaning behind it? Why 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 do we why for thousands of years have God's followers been doing this ritual that sometimes can become just something that we do? And if you know from the story, um, you'll know that the night before Jesus was betrayed, he, he sat down at his table with 12 disciples, and he gave what many would call the very first communion meal. But the reality of, of it is, is Jesus didn't just think of that on the spot. He wasn't just sitting there at the table like, oh, let me like make communion. No, this was actually rooted in history. And Jesus, what Jesus is actually doing is he's actually clarifying for his disciples and for us what his people had been doing for centuries. What his people had been doing for centuries prior to really even his arrival on earth. And he's saying, this communion meal is a tool now to help you remember that all of those other things are about me. I want you to use this meal, this time when we come to do this, to help your hearts reflect and refocus on who I actually am. Because the reality is that, that since the beginning of the, of time, really, and since the fall, God has been saying to humans, remember me. Remember who I am. Remember who you are in light of who I am. Remember, remember who, what I'm about. Remember all the things that I do. Remember what I provide. Because what happened really at the fall was the first humans chose to believe something different about God. In some way, they really chose to forget really who God was. They forgot who they were in light of who God was. And ever since then, every human has been struggling with the same thing, to remember who God is and who we are in light of that. It's why over and over and over again, all throughout the story of the Bible, we see God say, remember me. We see him say, use these laws, use these rituals to remember me. Don't forget who I am. I am the good and gracious God who brings life. I am the only one that is worth worshiping. It's why many of the Psalms that we've been looking at, um, and as you read through the book of Psalms, really have a ton of reminders of God's characteristics. They're, they're telling us, remember, this is who God is. As we read them, as we sing them, we're, we're, we're saying over and over again, this is who God is. Remind our hearts, remind our hearts. In Psalm 111, which we started reading today, and I want to read the whole thing, um, but repeatedly as I read it, you'll hear it. It reminds us of the truths of God. Um, and as I read it, just listen, and, and you can read along, and it tells us, about who God is. It, it tells us whose characteristics are. Psalm 111 says this. It's not on the screen behind you today. Um, Psalm 111 says this. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in Him. Full of splendor and majesty is His work. And his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenants forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just, and all his precepts are trustworthy. 
They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. What the psalmist is doing here is, as he's writing these words for us to, to listen to and remember, is he's saying, look at back at God's works. See him for who he really is. He says he's faithful, he's just, he's gracious, he's righteous, he's merciful, he's holy, he keeps his covenant. Verse 9 says he sent redemption to his people. When, when the psalmist actually wrote this um, We're in the part of of Israel's history where they're now living in the promised land and David is is their king. And and from what what you know of the story, I'm going to ask you a question. From what you know of the story, prior to this point in in the, the history of God's people, in the history of Israel, prior to this point in the event of the Psalms, what, what is the psalmist calling them to remember? What are some of the ways that God has worked? What are some of the ways that God has been faithful to his people, been merciful to his people, has sent redemption to his people? What are, what are some of the things from the story that you know of? Okay. They get removed from Egypt. They get, they get redeemed from Egypt. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah, God gives them the promised land. He goes in and, and miraculously people are wiped out by a very small amount. And that's actually God's work giving them the, the land. Yeah, what else? I don't know if this has happened yet, but uh, Purim and Esther and just keeping his people from death. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's using different Israelites to, to continue to use. Um, but that's a little bit later in the story. But yeah, we're good. What else? Yeah, when they're, when they're wandering around in the wilderness, even after they've disobeyed, right, God continues to give them bread so that sustains their life every day. He provides water out of rocks. He, he keeps them alive in the, in the wilderness. Yeah, good. Yeah, he does this miraculous work of parting the seas. It's just wide open, dry land. They walk across, and then Egypt's army is destroyed. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah, he keeps them, keeps them warm at night and cool during the day in the middle of the summer, in the middle of the desert, and he guides them and shows them which way to go. He gives them direction. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah, we see David and Goliath, right? God destroying their enemies with this giant and the little like kid taking him out. Yeah, God's works have been, been telling them over and over and over again. Yeah, what else? Yeah, the faithfulness to Joseph, the faithfulness to Abraham, where God said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make you a great nation, and now there are millions of people. God's faithfulness along the way. Yeah, good. What else? His forgiveness after the golden His forgiveness of them over and over again, we see that. Yeah, for sure. Throughout the Bible, His unconditional love. His, his his unconditional love. We see that even from the very beginning of the story, which there goes back to Adam and Eve, even after they disobey, God still loves them and says, yes, I need to remove you, but I'm going to provide a way for you. I'm going to, I'm going to give you hope. And we start to see that story trended out over and over and over again. Yeah. I think as you read through the book of Psalms, you'll see this, this theme of remembering. 
Even in the Psalms of Lament, where they're going on about, these are all of the hard things that are happening in my life. This is, this is really bad. I really hate this. And then there comes to a point in those Psalms where they say, yet I will remember who you are. All throughout the Bible, God is saying, remember me. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I'm like. Don't forget that you are made in my image now and I love you. You're my family. If we fast forward to the night of this story where where Jesus is is betrayed in Luke 22, it describes Jesus um, giving giving thanks and giving a blessing over the bread and cup and then giving his disciples and saying, this bread is my body and this cup is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Now remember that Jesus and his disciples were not just having some like casual dinner that night. They were actually celebrating Passover. We don't have time to read the whole story in Exodus, but if you read it, what happens is is Moses goes to Pharaoh and he asked uh, Pharaoh to let his people go, let God's people go. And he says, if you don't, then God's going to send a plague on on the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh says no, and so God sends a plague. And then after this plague plays itself out for a little while, Pharaoh says, all right, I'm done. You can go. And so the plague stops. And then Pharaoh says, no, I'm going to change my mind. And says, you can't leave. And so then another plague comes. And this cycle goes on over and over and over again. Where Moses comes back and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. And then goes back and forth. And as you think about these plagues, the plagues actually serve two purposes. The first one is this, is God wanted to display his power both to the Egyptians and to his people. God would say this over and over again after Exodus, after he brought brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God wanted to display his power so clearly that people would never forget it. That his people would not forget how powerful and how gracious he is. That this movement of God in Egypt would be such a defining moment that it would define them in their history as a people. He wanted to give them, this people, a display of his power that they would remember for generation upon generations. And I want to say God actually accomplished that. Not only then, but actually now. One of the biggest religious holidays for Jewish people is actually still Passover. They're still remembering and celebrating God's gracious, amazing power from freeing his people from Egypt. God wanted to display who he was so people would remember it. But the plagues also had had another element to them. The plagues were also about judgment. The Egyptians had enslaved God's people, had mistreated God's people, and the Egyptians had worshipped many false gods. And so the plagues on Egypt um, were for their idolatry. And God, God brought this judgment on Egypt in a very systematic way. Each one of the plagues really is, is God lifting up some sort, sort, of, sort of false God in Egypt and then knocking it down and saying, I am actually the true, only true God. You think this thing over here is God, that it's going to save you, but it's actually going to destroy you now. You think that thing serves you, but in the end, you're going to serve it. I am the only true God. So you think about this, for example, um, the Egyptians thought that the Nile gave them life. 
Until God says, you think the Nile gives you life? I'm going to turn the Nile into a source of death. I'm going to turn it into blood. I am God, not the Nile. You think your crops are what's going to bring you prosperity and provision? Guess what? I'm going to wipe out your crops with locusts. I'm going to wipe out your crops with hail because your crops are not God. I am God. You think Ra is the God of sun? Well, guess what? I'm just going to turn the sun off in the middle of the day, just like a switch. I'm going to turn it off and turn it on because I am God. Ra is not God. Over and over again, God lifts up their idols and then he smashes them to the ground. And then the plagues really culminate with this one final um, toppling of Egypt's biggest idol, Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh was the ultimate god in Egypt. Pharaoh was the one that people put their hope in. And they worshipped Pharaoh as as if he was God. And so with this last plague, God is coming into Pharaoh's house. And he's killing Pharaoh's most prized possession, his firstborn son, the heir to the throne, really in many ways this little demigod, the next god in line. And God is saying to Pharaoh and he's saying to his people, Pharaoh is not God, I am God. And so by killing Pharaoh's own son, God is saying, the man who thinks he's in control of this nation can't even stop me from bringing judgment upon his own house. His firstborn son, the one who's going to become the next God, will be toppled by my powerful hand. And so when God says this in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, he says this, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. If you do not, I will kill your firstborn son. God is saying, I'm going to kill your firstborn son so mine can be rescued. I am God You are not. I am the one to be worshipped. I am the one to be remembered, not anyone else. Now, as you think about these plagues, it wasn't just about um, Egypt and their idolatry. The Israelites were not faultless people. It wasn't just God righting a wrong. If you look throughout the whole story, we'll see that the Israelites were just as as fault as the Egyptians. They actually worshipped the same gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And even after God rescues them, they take those little gods off their mantle and take them into the desert with them. They were not faultless. Yet God in his mercy provided a way for them to escape the wrath that was going to be poured out on Egypt. When the angel of the Lord comes through and kills the firstborn of everything in the land. God provides a way for them to escape and be spared from this plague. And God says to his people, you can suffer like the rest of Egypt or you can substitute the life of an animal so that your sons will be spared. You'll be spared from the wrath and the judgment of God. And God says, take an unblemished one-year-old lamb, don't break any of its bones, kill it, Eat it as a family and then put the blood on the wooden doorpost of your house. Paint the blood on the house. And when I see the blood, when my angel sees the blood, he's going to pass over and not destroy you. Remember again what God is saying to Egypt. I will kill your firstborn so mine can be be rescued. And that's exactly 
what happens. The angel of the Lord comes through, and the Bible says where there, where there was not a house in Egypt that was not touched by death. That Egypt was filled with weeping and mourning. But the houses, the firstborn sons of all of God's people, were spared. The lives of the Israelites had been purchased by the blood of this lamb. And the Egyptians yell, Get out, we can't take it anymore. And Israel plunders them on the way out, just as God has said. And God's people would celebrate this as Passover from every year on, commemorating his deliverance and remembering who God is and what, how powerful he really is. So this is actually, this is what Jesus and his disciples are doing that night. That's what they're remembering. They're celebrating Passover. They're reflecting on this story. They're saying to each other, remember how God saved us. Remember how God delivered us. Remember how he spared our sons. Remember how we got set free. Remember how he carried us through the wilderness. Remember how he gave us the promised land. Here's the cup. Pass the wine around. Let's celebrate that. And what happens is Jesus grabs the cup and he holds on to that cup and he says, this cup is poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, there's a new order. There's a new arrangement between God and his people that's coming. This blood, this bread, this bread represents my body. This blood represents, this wine represents my blood that's going to be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. I am the new Passover lamb. He's saying, I know you probably didn't catch this when I was walking down by the river and John the Baptist saw me and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But let me just clarify it for you right now because I know we're celebrating Passover, but there's a new Passover meal. It's a new meal to celebrate God's covering of sin. I am the Lamb of God. I am the better Passover Lamb. I am the innocent Lamb of God whose blood will cover the entire world. And all who hide behind my blood, who take my blood over the doorpost of their life, will receive salvation now. And their life will be spared, just like what happened in Egypt. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says this. He says this, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus is really saying here, he's saying, I know we're here to celebrate the Passover. I know we're here to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread where we remember how God sent bread from heaven each day while we were in the wilderness. But I'm giving you something better. I'm giving you something better. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life who's come down from heaven to satisfy the deepest hunger of your soul, the deepest longing that only God can fill. It's my blood, my sacrifice that's sufficient for the righteous judgment of death that's due for your sins. You see, Jesus' death following this is not a catastrophe. It's not something that just overtook him, that just happened. 
Rather, it actually was planned from the beginning of time. And all the stories to this point are just precursors of what little glimpses of what the true Lamb of God is about to do. That he has actually come to restore and to redeem and to crush the head of the serpent that was told from the very beginning of the story. That his body would be broken, that his blood would be poured out so that God's people might be saved. They might be spared of death that they actually deserved and that you deserved and that I deserved for our rebellion. That his people now would have their sins covered once and for all. That the broken relationship with God would be restored. He's saying, here is a new Passover meal, a new meal to celebrate. The bread of heaven has come for you. The bread has come to save you. It's why we do communion every week, to remember that Jesus is actually the bread of life. That Jesus is actually the one whose blood covers our lives so that we actually now find rest and find peace in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Not on any work of our own. It's only Jesus, Jesus the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world. When we go to communion, really, this is a meal of celebration. It's a meal of of anticipation as we await his final return where he will once again come and eat and drink and will be in constant communion with Jesus for all eternity. You see, Jesus isn't done here when he tells them these things. He's going to remind them right here that that he's not only going to die, but he's going to rise again. This is why we celebrate. If you look at Mark chapter 14, where he, uh, Mark kind of lays out what happened that night. And in verse 27, Jesus starts quoting from, this, from Zechariah in this messianic prophecy in Zechariah 13 about how his followers are going to be scattered after his death. In verse 27 of Mark 14, it says this, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. They all said the same thing. See, the good news of the gospel is that although all of God's people deny him and are scattered and Jesus dies for the sins of the world, Jesus doesn't stay dead. He is actually risen up. He rises up and he goes before you and me. He goes before all of his people. It's not you and I doing something so that we can follow him. You and I continually deny him over and over. And we ultimately fail him. But Jesus is the one who actually is doing the work. And Jesus is the one who goes before him, us. Jesus is the innocent lamb of God that was slain on your and my behalf. And his resurrection now becomes the center point of the entire gospel. You see, if we don't have the resurrection, then nothing changed when Jesus died. 
It was all for naught. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. says this, verse 14, If Christ had not been risen, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ had not risen from the dead, we are still all dead in our sins. It didn't work. When Jesus really lied, he said he was going to be crucified and raised on the third day, but if he doesn't rise again, then everything he said is null and void. He's a liar. His death didn't mean a thing. Without the resurrection, his death would have been meaningless. Our faith would be no different than any other faith that, that rules this world. Every other religion in this world worships dead man's philosophies or inanimate objects. Something that's dead. But the good news is that Jesus actually did rise again. And because of the resurrection, we actually have a hope for the future and we have a power for daily living right now. In Romans 8, 11, it says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Can I say that's really good news? Do you understand what that verse is saying? That in Jesus, we are no longer walking around like dead people. We're no longer walking around having to do everything in our own power. We have the same power that lives inside of us that can raise the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead who has been in there three days is now living inside of you if you're in Christ. And Jesus did it all so that you and I don't have to strive in our own power. We get to live in the strength of His Spirit. In Christ, we are new creations. Everything has changed because of that moment in history. Because God has come into His people, we no longer have to go to a building to worship God. We get to worship God all the time, wherever we go. That's what we've been talking about in this series where we talk about gathered and scattered. We don't have to come here just to worship. Yes, we come here and we gather and we worship God together and we're equipped, but we go out and we worship all throughout the week. If you read further on in the book of Mark in verse, in chapter 14, Jesus said, you know what Jesus' followers do right after this happens to them and Jesus tells them all this? In verse 26 it says, and they sang a hymn and they went out on the Mount of Olives. They start singing and they start celebrating the good news that Jesus is actually the Lamb of God. And they leave the room praising God and they go out to the Mount of Olives where they're going to go pray and spend time with God the Father. They worship, which really is the proper response for the good news of what Jesus has done. Really, communion, what we see, when we think about communion, continue, communion extends past this time when we just take it together. It's really a start of the week of us remembering who God is and who we are in light of Him, that we get to celebrate and we get to worship Him and we get to live a life imaging Him and worshiping forever. And not just throughout our weeks, but for all eternity. Those of you who are children of God, please understand that you have the Spirit of God living in you and you are now the temple of God. The temple of the living God. That is pretty amazing, if I might say so. 
You get to walk around and you get to carry him wherever you go. And everywhere you go is actually designed to be a worship moment of God. That whatever you do, when you're playing, when you're at work, when you're eating, whatever you're doing, you are designed to actually be worshiping God in that moment. That everything you do now would be for Him and out of His love, that you'd be doing it for His sake. That out of His love for you, you and I would say, I want to do everything I can do for Him because His love for me is better than anything else. His love for me is better than anything else I could think of or worship or want to do. You see, when you and I actually understand that we are actually the church, we are actually the temple of the living God, it doesn't matter where you are now, that He is always with you. You don't need to come to some place to actually worship Him. You get to actually find Him in every moment of life. And the good news is that... that that he's actually that one who comes and finds you. You may not even be looking for him, but he's there pursuing you. He's the one who comes and runs after you just like he did before you became part of his family. Jesus was the one who was forsaken so that you and I don't have to be. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. He is God. He's the one who overcame sin and death for us by taking on flesh, by becoming the servant king who would lay down his life. And that he is actually the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is worthy of worship. Not just now, but all throughout the week. He is worthy of praise. Not just now, but all throughout the week. He's worthy to be remembered, not just now, but all throughout the week. It's not just good news. I'm going to say this is great news. We get to celebrate that this morning when we come together, but we get to also celebrate that throughout the rest of the week. When we take communion, what we're doing is we're refocusing our minds and our hearts on Jesus and especially this historical work that he's done in dying for our sins and raising from the dead. And as we do this, as we take this physical act of eating and drinking, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're mentally reminding our hearts and our, our brains that consciously calling us back to the person of Jesus, that he did actually once live, and that he did actually did the work of Jesus, that he died and he rose again, and he still lives now, which means that there is actually forgiveness for our sins. When we take communion each week, it's a reminder, really, that Christianity is not something new. It's not some new age spirituality. It's not getting in touch with your inner being. It's not some mysticism. It's actually rooted in historical facts that Jesus lived. He had a body. His heart pumped full of blood. He had skin that bled. He died publicly on a Roman cross in place of sinners. And anyone who believed in him gets to be rescued from the wrath of God. And that happened once and for all in history. It's why we take it every week. Because you and I are forgetful. The people in the Bible were forgetful, and you and I are no different. 
We need to be reminded over and over and over and over and over again that Jesus is actually worth worshiping more than anything else. And we get to actually ask him now daily. We get to, you know, you understand this? You get to actually ask Jesus for more of himself each day. You get to ask Jesus for more of his spirit to reign in your life. You get to ask Jesus to rely on him as the bread of life every day for every daily need that you have. You see, the good news of the gospel is not just something that we eat once, but rather as his people, we are in need of feeding on Jesus daily. That we are in desperate need of more Jesus every day. That he is actually our daily bread. That the only way that you and I can actually make it through life, actually imaging God the way he designed us to be, is actually daily eating the bread of the gospel to daily being reminded through the Word of God who God is and who we are now in light of that. We read this at the very beginning of the gathering together in Psalm 111. It says this, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. We get to do that together, both when we're here and when we're scattered apart. When we see another follower of Jesus and when we see someone who doesn't know Jesus, we get to tell them and we get to give thanks about who God is and how great his works are. And so as we take communion today, I want to take communion a little bit different than what we usually do. And I believe this is true that if, if you actually believe that Jesus is the Passover lamb, I want you to encourage you um, to go and take communion. And, and what we're going to do is, is there's four tables and they're spread out differently. There are two there and two there. I want you to go, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then come back to your seat. Don't eat it yet. Come back to your seat. Because what we're going to do is actually we're going to praise the Lord and we're going to actually give thanks to the Lord in the company of the upright, in the congregation, and we're going to tell the great works of the Lord. That can be something that you know historically from Jesus, something that you know that's, that, that about God's characteristic, or something that's personal of how you saw the great works of the Lord work out in your own life. And so I want to pray... Um, and we're going we're gonna to come back together. We're going to go and take it, and we're going to come back together, and we're going to just spend some time talking about how great God is. Because you need to talk about it just like I just talked about it. Or probably better than what I just talked about. We need to be telling the praises of God over and over and over again, reminding our hearts. And then as we, after we do that, we'll, we'll eat together and we'll, and we'll do just like the disciples did. We'll sing songs and we'll celebrate and we'll leave. All right? Uh, Father, we thank you um, that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. Father, we thank you that, um, that the Passover lamb has come, that we don't need any new sacrifices, that Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all, that now gives us life. Father, we thank you that we do not serve a dead God. That we don't just follow some dead man's philosophies. 
but that we actually serve a living God who rose from the dead three days after he sacrificed himself for our sins so that your righteous wrath could be satisfied. Father, we thank you that we now get to have relationship with you, that we get to now have that spirit that lives inside of us. Turn us to see you in every moment of life. Father, I pray that we would be people that continually celebrate the good news of who you are, that we're people that continually remember that you are the great Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.